Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Friday, April 28th, and we are going to focus today on energy storage. Uh, Rodney has been banging this drum, you know, for the past, you know, four or five months uh, following a meeting with Iola of Row Motion, I think uh, at a conference late last year, but he was banging the drum also three, four years ago. Tesla is now, you know, 100% or more, you know, kind of growth uh, talking about in terms of gigawatt hours installed energy storage will be bigger than EV uh, in a few years. So most companies or most analysts, uh, I think, are or Rodney thinks uh, are understating energy storage uh, in, in their models and uh, from a lithium and 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 other raw material perspective, it's something that analysts should focus on. And you know, so Iola, please uh, tell us about Roll Motion a little bit. We interviewed uh, Adam Panay a few years ago. It's been a while since we've uh, you know covered this topic. So, tell us a bit about Roll Motion and what you do specifically. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm with a company called Roll Motion. We're a research house and consultancy based in London, um, and essentially we provide market analysis and data on the, the kind of battery market, so on EV stationary storage and also the related other markets. So yeah, we have lots of reports and, and analysis on the market. And uh, just in terms of what you cover specifically? Um, so I spend a lot of my time looking at the stationary storage markets um, as well as yeah, you know, getting involved in, in other pieces of the picture as well. All right, Rodney's going to start the question. We just want to remind uh, everybody, if you uh, like this video, please you know, like it um, and leave a comment on the video. Uh, subscribe to Rockstock channel. And uh, you know, we, we are offering early access and extended cuts to videos like this with Iola. If you want those, uh, you please join us on Patreon at patreon.com uh, Rockstock channel. Okay, great. If we, we start off... One of the things, you know, when you look at EV, the estimates around gigawatt hours installed and, and deployed and so on is, is, is very tightly centered around one another with all of the forecasters. But I'm seeing in the ESS, there's quite a broad spectrum of, of guessing as to what's deployed. And it, in my opinion, it looks uh, and estimated, uh, can you just sort of fill us in on 2022 and how you guys saw those numbers? Yeah, so, I mean, the market experienced massive growth last year, um, pretty much doubled to around 75 gigawatt hours, um, primarily driven by the Chinese and the US markets. And, and we're essentially forecasting that it's going to be similar growth again this year. So getting up towards 140, 150 gigawatt hours, and that's new installed capacity. And, uh, and is that largely dominated by China and the US? Exactly. They do make up the majority of the market, um, and that's really on the back of strong policy support and legislation in those two regions. Um, and just in terms of the drive, because, you know, clearly energy storage is now outstripping EV growth, and it looks like, you know, that could continue. What's driving it? The legislation in China and the certain provinces and so on, and, and the US and targets, what's underpinning, what's underpinning that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, essentially, storage is kind of an essential part of the energy transition as more renewables add to the grid. Um, storage is, is really essential to ensuring that, you know, these renewables can be balanced and their variable nature uh, means that the grid doesn't collapse or there's always a supply there of energy. In the Chinese market, you essentially have legislation on a province by province level. So this kind of ranges, it comes in different ranges, but essentially the way it works is if you install renewables, 
you have to install storage to go alongside that. And that works in the kind of percentage terms. So if you install 10 megawatts of solar, you have to install between 10 and 15% of that as battery storage with a one to two hour duration. So, and each province has kind of ranges in terms of how high those targets are. So that's, that's really a key driver there. And that came in January, 2022. So that's when we saw a lot of projects kind of get going in the Chinese market. In the US, it's, it's really more a story around particular states. So the majority of, of projects which have come online so far have been in California and in Texas. And that really comes down to those market mechanisms in those two states and basically where you can make money. And then the other big thing in the US is you've got the investment tax credit, which was part of the Inflation Reduction Act. This is something that did exist previously, um, but was basically being phased out and was only for solar paired storage. So they've essentially changed that now. So standalone storage can access it and also extended it out to 2025. And with that, you can essentially get kind of a, a 30% CapEx saving or tax credit for each for project you install. And that can be extended further to 50% if you meet a number of certain kind of energy community requirements. So a lot of support from, from those two regions. Likely to see anything along those lines in Europe? So, I mean, Europe historically has been pretty slow to get going in terms of the energy storage space. There's a few exceptions. The UK and Ireland are kind of the leading players in, in grid in the grid market. Right now, the, the EU is going through kind of a big reform, which is part of the EU Green Deal Industrial Plan, which was kind of their reaction to the Inflation Reduction Act. With that, they're doing a, a full reform of the electricity market design. And within that, there's a lot of kind of specification of the role of storage and demand response measures and, and how important they're going to be. Right now, there's not really the same level of funding as what we see in the US, but there should be more clarity around that in, in the months and, and years to come. So definitely we'll see more support coming through from Europe, but right now it's not really as clear cut as, as elsewhere. Okay. And then just uh, going back to what Howard mentioned I stand corrected, but I think Tesla did about six, six and a half gigawatt hours last year. They're now scaling Lathrop, and then they're looking to put a plant in in China, which will give them a combined uh, energy storage capacity of 80 gigawatt hours. So, I mean, exponential growth. Who do you see taking a demand off them? I think I saw you tweet or something, you know, the China probably for export, but um in the US, is, is some of that linked to the charging network, say for the semi, or is it all storage, or what's what's going to be useful? Yeah, so the, the Lathrop facility and the one in Shanghai as well, they're both for mega pack production. So there's, there's really large units that you see kind of going in and grids and going in related to solar farms. Um, so they'll be primarily serving kind of grid markets and renewable markets rather than necessarily the, the kind of supercharger network. The way that we see it is the lateral facility should serve kind of the US market and will probably be the first of, you know, potentially a few in the US because the demand is really quite significant. And then the Chinese mega, mega pack factory, we see that as potentially kind of serving exports to the rest of Asia. Um, so particularly the Australian market is pretty strong um, and then also potentially exporting into Europe kind of on the precedent that Europe doesn't have its own mega pack factory yet, which again is something that we'll likely see in the kind of next next year or even sooner, I expect. I mean, the demand for this these batteries and these systems is, is really high. And I would say that that's almost the pinch point of the market right now. You know, the cell capacity is, is there, but in terms of people actually manufacturing the systems, 
I mean, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of players involved, but not many of them have kind of the scale that Tesla is at right now or is getting towards. And let me just understand, is it is it CATL, LFP cells that are going into yeah. those? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So see, they're purchasing cells and then yeah, assembling them into their own packs and then into their own systems. What that does mean is they can tap into the $10 per kilowatt hour part of the production tax credit. So that's a pretty nice add-on there for, for those mega pack facilities in the US. Right. And let me just understand, you mentioned as well that the, the for energy storage, there might be a, a pivot towards, towards slightly a bit larger format, cell format. So yep. at the moment, are those cells that say Tesla and others are using, are those essentially just EV cells or is it? No, so if you go back like maybe 18 months to two years, they, they really were kind of acting as a surplus market to the EV space. So cells were, you know, just cells that were being produced for EV were just going into these storage projects and storage systems. But there's been a bit of a pivot over the last few years as this market has picked up and you're starting to have um, cells that are designed dedicated to stationary storage. And the real trend here is basically to a larger cell format. So you're you're looking at prismatic cells, but basically you're, you're kind of pushing up um, the capacity of the cell. So CATL last year came with a, a 280 amp hour cell, and that's just a single cell. With that, you're getting a cycle life of around 8,000 cycles. Um, and then since then, we've seen a whole range of the Chinese players announce even bigger single cells. And the largest one we've seen right now is EV Energy, and there's is 560 amp hours. And with that, you're getting around 12,000 cycles. Um, so you're starting to get, it, to get into pretty long lifetimes for the, how long these battery storage assets will last. Yeah, I noticed on CATL's uh, results, they actually had a specific line item for energy storage. So I yeah. guess that makes sense then in terms of the slightly different formatting. Yeah, exactly. The other thing, I guess, with that as well is you're seeing kind of dedicated gigafactories set up just for energy storage. So Whereas previously they would have been made in the same gigafactory, you have you know a specific gigafactory that's just for energy storage batteries. And if we can just talk about the cathodes and these, you know, the market has shifted away. It was a bit of NMC. It looks to be almost all heading towards LFP now. Now we're seeing sodium ion rear its head, I guess, when lithium prices were really high. So the question is, can you talk a little about the how the comparative performance in terms of cycle life and so on of sodium iron versus lithium and if you think sodium iron is, is going to be a major player in this space yeah so i mean right now lfp is really the, the chemistry of choice in in storage with these new cell formats that are coming out coming out you are getting towards pretty pretty impressive cycle lives and sodium ion batteries aren't quite at that level. You have a few players who are reporting kind of six to 8,000 cycles, which if you compare that to like a normal LFP cell, it's, it is pretty good. And, you know, people would, would have been very happy with that even a year ago, I'd say, but these new LFP cells are definitely kind of pushing the limits or getting towards quite an impressive level of cycle life. I mean, sodium ion, we do, we do expect it to play a big part in this market. It's interesting in the way that, you know, it's not a drastic change in the sense that, if you're a system manufacturer, so if you're you're one of the big if you're one of the players, say your Tesla or say your Fluence or any of the other big players in terms of system manufacturing, ultimately for them it doesn't really matter what the cell chemistry is. You know they switched over from NCM batteries to LFP batteries in the last 
two years or so and that same change could happen with sodium iron the the, the big thing that we see and speaking to some of the, the kind of big integrators as well is there's a kind of sense of hesitancy around sodium iron right now and i think we will see it happening a lot faster in china than anywhere else and you'll see i mean the first uh, there's a 60 megawatt hour sodium iron project that which is planned to come online this year in china but i think it will be a few years before we see projects of that scale really hitting the kind of us or european markets just because some of these integrators are like we just got used to lfp or we don't want any chemistry right now so um I mean, it's interesting now that you've talked about the bigger formatting, if you're talking about double the cycle life for LFP, then that adds another dimension into yeah. the price, you know, price compete points. So yeah. is there sort of, uh, I don't know if it's as simple as this, but is there some kind of an inflection point on the lithium carbonate price that sort of drives sodium iron as to, you know, being meaningfully cheaper or... Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if there's a specific price point, but I think definitely last year when carbonate was went up so much, everyone you know was really looking for a cheaper alternative, which is potentially why sodium iron got so much hype in the in the last year. You know, with lithium prices lower, that price differential does get smaller, and it becomes maybe a bit more of a, a close game that you're playing with. The other thing you can make is it, not just the kind of sodium lithium comparison when comparing the prices. One of the other big big like savings within sodium iron is you can use um, an aluminium current collector instead of copper. So that's another point, point where you can you can cut some costs. And now the kind of anode supply chain for sodium iron isn't really, you're using hard carbon essentially, it's not established. So right now the, the anode is, is more expensive than in an LFP cell. There's no reason it, it can't, pretty cheap, but um, right now that price differential is, it's kind of fluctuating, I would say, with lithium price. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the things question I was going to ask, and I've asked elsewhere is, you know, we've seen pinch points as lithium iron, you know, production has expanded so quickly. Are we going to see supply? Would there be pinch points for sodium iron if it scales, you know, at, at a really quick pace? Yeah, definitely. You know, the, the whole supply chain has to be built up, and that's something that is potentially holding it back right now, particularly on the anode side. That's where we do see that, that point currently. I mean, lots is being announced kind of every week. We're seeing more announcements come out of China in terms of both sodium ion kind of cell capacity, but also anode and cathode. So um, yeah, there's there's things happening, but as with anything, when it's scaling, it's going to take a bit of time to yeah work out all the cracks and make it. And work. if we, we just sort of looked at it, if the prism of or the IRA and wanting a sort of closed closed loop supply chain, you know, where they're still getting their heads around, you know, there's some work to do with LFP. Will sodium iron bring a whole lot of would it bring a lot of challenges if the US wanted to to go it alone? I mean, potentially like less so than you you're potentially working with less critical materials than than say an NCM cell or LFP cell. So potentially it would be easier to set up a supply chain. There are a few sodium ion players who are kind of working in the US market and, and have some plans. There's this, yeah, they're basically just trying to get things going. But um, I think right now it's, it is very much a China story, apart from these few players. I've just got the names of a couple of them. So one, one of the, the ones in, in the US, which is quite interesting actually, is a company called Natron Energy. So they they only have, a their energy density is really low. So they're, they're basically going in, you know, like 20 to 30 watt hours per kilogram and that's mainly to serve like the telecoms and ups markets 
but right now you know they don't have much capacity so it's it's still early days but i think we'll see more more players coming through in the us and european market over time as well just going back to the us you've got Obviously, Tesla has is, is got Lathrop going to 40 gigawatt hours. I think we've seen some announcements from Freya and some of the other. Who are the other players in the US that are are looking to scale up, you know, on the LFP or on the energy storage side? Yeah, so, I mean, Freya are definitely big, have pretty ambitious plans in terms of kind of the cell capacity side of things. So with their US facility, they're looking at 34 gigawatt, gigawatt hours. And it's likely that with see some kind of integrated system manufacturing they they announced in europe that they were doing they're going to have like kind of connected system manufacturing with nidex so i imagine there'll be something similar we'd see in the u.s market as well from Frere. some of the other other ones in the u.s lg announced just a couple of weeks ago a dedicated 16 gigawatt hour line for ess cells and they've also got a relationship with hanwa to do kind of the system side of things Fluence announced their Utah facility, and that's I think that's around six gigawatt hours. So there's there's definitely a few players getting going. Core Power, Onext Energy, they've all got kind of plans in the works for systems and cells. So there's activity happening, but right now Tesla's kind of you know set quite a high high limit high standard, I guess, for forty gigawatt hours. It's quite a lot more than than what anyone else is, is going at. I'm pretty bullish on on ESS. If you, if I can put you on the spot and say, what do you think? Gigawatt hours deployed in 2025 and 2030. What are your numbers? Yeah. So in 2025, we're, we're seeing over 200 gigawatt hours globally. And that's that's on the uh, the grid, across the grid and behind the meter um, markets. And then by 2030, like doubling again. So getting up towards like 500 gigawatt hours. This year, you said it's 140 to 150. Now you're telling me 2025 is only 200. Yeah, two, 240. It's not far so away, 2025. Well, it's two years of growth, so yeah. th- that's quite a slowdown from here. I um, mean, you're, you're working from a higher base, though. I think that's the thing. Uh, <laughs> that's a cop art. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I w- what I would say with this market is, you know, it's uh, it's growing faster than I think anyone expected or, or really envisioned. And there really is no kind of upper cap. So, you know, when, when we're looking at the EV, EV market and forecasting that, and when anyone's forecasting that, really what you're looking at is what percentage of ICE vehicles are going to be electrified. With, with this market, the, the number of applications and use cases is growing all the time. Um, and really it comes down to, are there going to be enough systems produced? And that's really what, what the kind of pinch point is there. Um, yeah, in the about, same way. About to yeah. So the cells, are, there seems to be a ramp up in cell capacity. So it really is yeah. in the systems to install it. Exactly, exactly. So that that's, I mean, some of those figures that I kind of listed off in the US, you know, other than, than Tesla saying 40 gigawatt hours, the majority of those other ones were around kind of 10 to 20 gigawatt hours. And even if you add those all up, you're, you're still, you know, you're struggling to get up to really, really high numbers. But of course, you know, if we see Tesla come and announce three more mega pack facilities in the US, then, you know, we'd upgrade our forecast. And in the same way that there's, there's a lot of applications which are just emerging. So one of the ones I saw recently was, um, you know, green hydrogen production, essentially to have battery storage paired with it to ensure that you can produce your green, your green hydrogen throughout the whole day. Another big one being at nuclear plants. So if, you, you're, if you're installing a nuclear facility, basically have the same capacity, but as a battery with the idea being you 
over the night rather than selling directly to the grid. You charge out your battery, and then during the day, you essentially had double discharging from both the nuclear facility and the battery. So there's all sorts of these applications which are, are really just emerging and um, have a lot of potential to, to make this market even bigger. And in terms of, so we have a sense of how long it takes <clears throat> on the lithium iron supply chain, you know, to build the various, um, you know, plants and so on in, in that. How long does it take to build like a systems plant for, for energy storage? Yeah, I mean, it, it should be a lot faster. You're really de dealing with like hardware a lot more than anything else, hardware and software. So, I mean, you know, I guess Lathrop is, is a good example from that being announced. You know, they're, they're, ramp, they're ramping up right now. So it, I would say, I mean, maybe to, to get something that's 40 gigawatt hours up to full capacity, you might be looking at like two years from announcement. But that's something that it, it should be a relative, like maybe once they've done it once as well, they can do it faster. Um, but because it is much more on the hardware and the software side rather than more kind of intricacies with cells, it should be a lot faster. So that chain could scale fairly quickly then? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just uh, going back to your numbers of gigawatt hours deployed, what percentage do you think will be lithium ion based versus sodium ion or alternative, just so we can get assessment for those who do lithium forecasting? Pretty, pretty high levels of lithium, um, kind of out to 2030. So uh, in 2030, we're saying around 90% um, of that is lithium ion. Um, 90%. But, yeah. So for, for there's some kind of, I saw, you know, your friend, uh, ex-CRU, George Heppel, uh, basically mm -hmm. saying he's going to stop paying for any research from any provider yeah, that, doesn't, that. that doesn't include sodium ion in it. So we, we do include it. But we think it, we think it's going to take time. So, okay. I mean, what we're saying basically is um, by in 2025, we're expecting about seven gigawatt hours of sodium ion deployed in this market in that year. So. And then by, by 2030, you're looking at close to like 30 gigawatt hours of sodium ion coming online in terms of storage. But, you know, that, that's another thing as well, where right now it would be hard for us to kind of go in and say, OK, this market could be 50 percent sodium ion because um, the capacity just just isn't there and isn't hasn't been announced yet. And also that reluctance that we are hearing from a lot of the Western integrators. So until we kind of see a bit more progress in the sodium ion, space i think that that's what's the li our limiting factor right now in terms of going you know this is going to be a, a massive market for sodium mine it is going to be massive but it's just going to take a bit of time okay yeah. i all I, I mean it's so much of our uh bet you know i'm the lithium ion bull right that's my tagline and, and a lot of that is predicated on the fact that it's been utilized for i don't know 25 years you know so and that's why it's a safe uh, you know, known chemistry, right? And, and if you're for EVs in particular, you know, that's critically important, right? You know, a 10 year warranty battery, sodium ion is only a few years into it. So just from a ubiquitous uh, ubiquity point of view, right? You know, it's one thing that you could announce a, a big battery factory based on lithium ion, I guess, some of those factories can switch to sodium ion. But could you address that kind of safety ubiquity question as you know because there's always i was at a conference yesterday and and you know to the extent that people question whether or not oh if lithium prices are too high then you'll substitute right 
it just raises doubt, which then slows investment. And, you know, I'm of the mind of like, yeah, we need competing technologies. Like for energy storage, lithium is probably not the best use, right? It's better to put it into, um, you know, EVs. So I guess just address that kind of broad sense. It's not just this Chinese technology versus a U.S. technology. It's just the like the number of years and safety and regulations, et cetera, apart from energy density. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the thing with Sodimine is as much as it is, you know, only hitting news stories in the last year, these developments have been going on for a long time. And it really was just the fact that the lithium prices got so high that, you know, spurred it back to the center of conversation and and potentially kind of sped up some plans. So, I mean, in, in terms of, you know, the stats that people are getting from, from these batteries, they are pretty promising. Like, um, you know, the safety is good. You're working obviously with a lower energy density, but for certain applications, that, that's not too much of an issue. And, you know, we, we added sodium mine into our EV forecast recently as well. But the, the way that we see it is, is primarily going to be in your kind of A and B segment vehicles, where you're potentially looking at ranges of, say, 100 to 150 kilometers. And, you know, when, when you actually think about this in terms of battery demand, okay, it may be going into 20% of EVs, but these are, the, these are the vehicles which have the smaller pack size anyway. So when that actually translates to battery demand, it's, it's close to kind of, you know, 10%, 6% of the market. So it, it's, it's going to be part of the picture, but I think, you know, it's not going to just come in and suddenly destroy the whole lithium market, lithium industry. That's, that's definitely not the case. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Iola. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you for taking the time and uh, look forward to continuing the dialogue.